Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special returning guest is Sir Stephen Wilkinson. So, Sir Stephen Wilkinson, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Lovely to be back. Serial. I'm a serialist. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. For people who are hearing about you for the first time, can you just tell us a bit about you, you and your business? Yep, I can, gladly. Um, I um, studied German at uh, literature and economics at uh, Durham in the early 1980s, and I left for a career in finance in Germany, of all places, um, in the mid 1980s i was like to say that i uh, they hired me because i had a smattering of german i could tie a tie and was reasonably articulate and not because of any innate financial abilities um and if i'd have applied four months later after the october 1987 crash i definitely would never have been <laughs> given a place because i had a Freezing higher, I think, across the entire industry, and I don't think I'd have, I don't think they'd have taken me after that. But anyway, I sneaked in just in time um, to this lunatic industry, um, and I spent most of my career um, in it or a variant of it um, ever since. My interest has always been in business, small, medium-sized businesses. So I sort of morphed into that at the end of the. Uh, last millennium um, and have been engaged either as an investor or as an advisor to small, medium-sized growth businesses ever since in one form or another. And over the last couple of years, I've done something which I should have done a lot earlier, which was um, teach. I have a particular um, view of finance, and I've always been astonished at how many business people really don't have very much confidence around the numbers part of their business and either studiously ignore them or hope that they, hope that they won't, won't get tripped up by a lack of financial fluency. So I've been teaching a course on getting confidence around financial numbers and learning how to tell, how to read the stories that numbers tell them. Anyway, I left Germany seven years ago, moved to Ireland. Um, I wasn't quite sure where I was going to go. I didn't want to go back to the UK, which is which would have been the sort of logical thing to do in my very early 50s um, and looking to come home. But at the time, um, Cameron, who was prime minister, was facing a September election, and it looked very much as though he was going to lose to this unholy alliance of Miliband and the ghastly Sturgeon. And I remember looking at talking to my wife and saying, you know, I, I just know which way it's going to go. And if that comes out, if that if that is going to be the outcome, it's a Scottish nationalist Labour, then we're going to have the 70s on steroids all over again. And I really can't face that. So we decided to, 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 to move to Ireland with the idea of being close enough to Germany so I could pop over on a plane to look after my business interests there. And if things got really bad, um, then to to emigrate to America, basically. That was sort of the, the option. But we've 
we've fallen in love with with Arlo. We've been here for seven years now, and I don't think, unless I'm forced to, that I would want to move from here. Um, and it's been a really good choice. So, you know, um, the last year and a half, I've travelled less than at any other time in my life, like most of us, and have found that very conducive to a better and more reflective and certainly more productive life. And I'm, I can't deny that it's been, you know, I've had a good last 18 months. Um, between you've, had a, you've, had a, you've had a good war. Yeah, I think, you know, on balance that I have, and I know how very privileged and um, fortunate I've been to be able to say that. Um, but it's true. So there's no point in denying it. And, you know, I've enjoyed the space of being able to write and not to waste as much time as I have in the past traveling. And I, I had not quite appreciated how much of a drain on productivity and just general ability to get things done travel is. So, mm. so anyway, that's me in a nutshell. The, so, um, the small, medium-sized businesses that you refer to, would they, would they count as Mittelstand? They would, only most of my business is now interesting enough, either in the UK or in the USA. Um, and I, I've oriented very specifically towards those two, um, towards sort of the Anglosphere, firstly because it's more efficient. Um, I moved from Germany very specifically. Or one of the major reasons was that I really, I was really missing my language, mm. and you know, if I were to, if I were to if I were to focus on where I've been over the last the linguistically, then I would have to do everything in two languages, and that's just mm. a, I don't want to do that. So most of my business is now actually in the US, and about twenty percent of it in the UK. What what does Mittelstand mean? Mittelstand is um, well. Basically, um, Stand is a is a section or a um, um, a sort of a, a level of society, and middle means middle. So it's right. it, it's not it can't Mid-table. be translated as middle class. Mm. It's the middle. Um, it's the middle set of of businesses, and it basically it's a quite an emotive word that that refers to. Privately owned family businesses, sort of multi generational, um, with a deep commitment to sort of their the welfare of of their of their um, community community and employees, and with a focus on on excellent um, excellent quality. And it's the Mittelstand is something that Germany is ferociously proud of, and. It, it's sort of one of the great cultural highlights of of its economic renaissance over the past eighty years is this this very diverse, very uh, export orientated, very engineering based approach to business, and and it, it's defi- it's the defining characteristic of of German business is this Mittelstand approach. This, this is sounding a bit like honest, genuine free market capitalism rather than crony capitalism. Well, it, it certainly has elements of that, although it's very interesting that um, the, the, the Mittelstand, um, which is you know, every politician who wants to get elected, will, will 
will have to sing his little hymn to the Mittelstand. Um, and indeed, Germany's done sort of set up an infrastructure that, that very much supports that. Most interestingly, of course, the banking sector. The banking sector in Germany is, um, tell me if this is boring, but it's based on three pillars. The one pillar of the purely private banks, like Deutsche Bank and Commerzbank, and in the olden days, Dresdner Bank, and sort of all the private ones. And then you've got the um, what are called the savings banks, or the Sparkassen, at the top of which column are the Landesbank, who are sort of aggregators of Sparkassen or savings bank capital. And there's always one in each of the, the federal states in Germany. So there's one in Bavaria, and there's one in in, in in Stuttgart, in Baden-Württemberg, and there's one in Hessen. So every one of the states has its own Landesbank, um, which is a sort of aggregator of capital, sort of shared services and pooling. And they're the ones who made the most egregious mistakes because they don't actually have a business model. And they've got vast amounts of surplus capital. And they've got a quasi-government guarantee, which made, it made them want to do all sorts of things. So when Goldman Sachs was talking about stupid German money, they were talking about Landesbanker banker because they were just, a, you know, <laughs> they were the pansy at every table. And then the third one are the cooperative banks or the Genossenschaftsbank. And Germany is, is, has always traditionally been massively overbanked because of you know, these sort of regional and local um, small and very you know, strong well-capitalized banks you know, as Germany is a savings nation and they're very conservative. They would sort of pop all their savings into these banks and the banks would have sort of quasi-government guarantees behind them that allowed them to you know, be quite um, generous with the, 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 the cost of capital and, and how they financed um, business. And so because it was overbanked and because Basically, money was much cheaper than it ought to have been, um, and there was a great deal of competition. The Mittelstand, who were the sort of profiteurs of, of that, more or less, and the people who wanted to buy houses, they they had access to un I could say unlimited, but very very deep pools of capital that was quite happy to lend to them on the basis of personal guarantees and assets. Which were constantly rising in price because you know property prices, and um, and so the German business people never really had to grapple with capital uh, access to capital of one of their main constraints because there was always some bank that was you know able to lend them a enough to be going on with. So that led to a to a dereliction of of focus on building equity. Um, and a lack of financial fluency and understanding, which, by the way, is something you will find. I know, Tim, that you're a big fan of Japanese, investing in Japanese companies. But what, I'm, what I've found over time is that companies with, or countries with large um, trade surpluses, because they have a very strong export business, tend to have very underdeveloped um, understanding of capital and capital markets. So they've been you know, great savers, but they don't really understand how money works. And you're seeing that in Japan. And you've always seen it in Germany. Germany has the lowest ratio 
of savings invested in its economy through the stock market of any advanced economy. And it shows people just don't really understand money. They understand savings, so they've got lots of them. And this low interest rate environment is absolutely crippling for savings countries without a degree of sophistication around capital and how it works and difference between speculation investment and difference between long and short term and the function of stock markets and stock market investments and direct investments. I just don't understand how that works. That's a, that's a really interesting point. One of the things that we've come to learn over the last few years as, as investors is that everything really comes to whether you're investing into a company, i.e. into a, a CEO and a board, or whether you're investing with another fund manager, a specialist manager, it all comes down to capital allocation. And as you say, if, if people don't have a grasp of, of, of capital allocation, then that's a real problem. Um, two sugars for me, please. Um, <laughs> And so if, you, if you've got, if you're running a company, there's a number of things you can do. You can, like you say, you can raise equity finance, you can uh, raise money through the credit market, um, you can go to debt. Um, you can then spend your money on acquisitions or developing plant or machinery or whatever. But basically it all comes down to cap, you know, correct capital allocation. And at a certain point, if you're a listed business, you may want to buy back some of your stock if the stock's trading at a, a naturally cheap level. Those people or those entities that don't master capital allocation will never ultimately thrive. I, I, I would wholeheartedly subscribe to that. But it's a very, it's a very interesting avenue to, to wander down. And if you want to wander down it for a second, we can do. Um, and as seeing as you started it and it's your show, I will take the bait. Um, one of the things that I teach people in finance, business finance, is that business finance tells the story of how money gets turned into things and things get turned back into money again. Mm-hmm. That's it. There is, that's all it is. And I, I, and I use the European-style balance sheet to explain it. And the European-style balance sheet is the T-account. And you've got liabilities on the right-hand side. You've got assets on the other. And I find that a much, much more intuitive way of understanding how, how capital is turned into things because it, it demonstrates that every, every unit of currency, let's say every pound, if you could imagine it as a coin, it has... It has two sides, and one side describes what you've done with the money, and the other side describes where it's come from. And every everything, every every piece of every unit of currency is both things at the same time, which is the beauty and the elegance of double entry bookkeeping, because it tells you that's why you need a ledger with two sides. Where's it come from, and what have you done with it? And that act of turning money, which is always the initial act, is not a question of chicken and egg. It's always the money that comes first. Anybody who sets up a business, the very, very, very first thing they will do when they set up the company and issue a hundred pounds worth of shares for their limited company is they will purchase those shares and put a hundred pounds in. And in that second, 
the hundred pounds is represented on both sides of the ledger once as initial capital and on the other side as a hundred pounds, presumably in a bank account somewhere. And everything else after that, and as the balance sheet grows, is a is a conversion of capital into things, which then get turned back into money again through the profit and loss statement, hopefully. And and the bit that don't are captured in the cash flow statement, which sort of explains why not everything that comes out of the bottom is necessarily cash. And that's all that finance is. But the, the act of turning money into things is at the very, very heart of the entrepreneurial magic. And it is the only um, act, entrepreneurial act, that is not delegatable. And you can delegate absolutely everything else in a business. Everything. But the final arbiter, the final responsibility for figuring out what capital gets turned into is, and therefore what you refer to as capital allocation, which no small businessman would ever think that they're doing. They don't mm. think that they are in any way engaging in capital allocation. But of course they are. The moment that you decide to buy inventory or raw material, add your labor to it, and then turn it into something that somebody else is willing to buy, even if it's a service business, you are making implicit capital allocation decisions. And if you don't understand the mechanism of that, and most business people never give their balance sheet a second look, they just don't. Now you are you're, you're you are acting on the impulse, or you're acting under the, the the constraints of what you think the industry business model will is is dictating to. Right? If you're making widgets, then or if you're making carrot cake, well then you've got to buy carrots. Of course you can. But that nobody is telling you that you have to make carrot cake. You know the the decision to do that is at the very heart of the entrepreneurial decision. You know, there are other ways of doing it. So I've got a quite fun um, example that I take, especially when you know, you know that most businesses, most business owners, small to medium-sized businesses, that SME sector, which accounts for something like 95% of the number of businesses in most developed economies. Um, I, th- they'll be taking home less than 60,000 dollars or pounds a year from their business. And they'll be working north Un- of unholy six. hours. Unholy. Let's say north of 70. So if you calculate the the wages that they're earning, if they're worse, worse, the worse than minimum wage probably. It's 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 usually worse than the minimum wage, much worse. And if you sort of factor in the fact that they don't have holidays, they've got no pensions or very little They've got very little security. Most of them don't have adequate insurance because they can't afford you know, all the extra burdens that that security would give them. And they're hoping somehow that at the end of all this exertion, either something dramatic is going to happen and they will be wealthy, or that the business is going to be worth something, which mostly it isn't. Um, but before I lose the thread of this, um, the I have a little exercise, which is the the real estate equivalent of the business, and that is to take the balance sheet equity to to you know, use the same sort of aggressive leverage structure that they might have in their business. Let's say, I know, fifteen percent equity and eighty-five percent debt. 
and say, okay, what at what point, what what sort of income would you be generating in a rental property on a like for like working, you know, maximum four hours a week? I, it's, it's, if you've got a, a single apartment that you're renting out, you you know, even if you went and visited your tenant every single day to ask them how they were getting on, and if you could, you know check the lose, you'd be hard pushed to do more than an hour's work a day, really hard pushed. Um, and so there comes a point where you're sort of comparing, and this is an absolutely a capital allocation decision. So say, how, if I were to take my balance sheet and turn it theoretically into real estate, where I was being, you know, I had a, a dependable asset that was generating, let's say, a if you're leveraging at 80%, you're probably going to be earning 10 to 12 to maybe 15% return on equity, um, generating tax-protected cash flow. Um, <laughs> at what point does it make sense? To, you know, what, How does my business have to perform if I'm working 70 hours a week? Um, what does it have to do for me in order to compete with um, uh, the real estate equivalent? And it's a really good exercise to do because it does put into very stark relief the different results that adding labor to materials and creating property which is you know, the, the austrian way of thinking about um about how wealth and value are created um in different understandable scenarios so you know, me working away 70 hours a week in my business and taking home less than the minimum wage and creating zero value long term or my sticking it into a property and letting the market take care of it. How do you value um, something that that could be generated over a long period of time? So you could be working on something for one, two, three years, and then literally create the light bulb that makes millions and and billions. Well, generally, what I've found is that people who are who are looking to make billions. Millions or even gazillions. Well, I mean, I, I exaggerate have, to make a point. Generally, no, really. <laughs> <laughs> generally, generally, people who are have that as their ambition know that that's the that's the moonshot they're aiming for. Right. And if, if you've got your laundry business, um, then you know that you're not going to. It's, it's just not going to be that scalable unless you deliberately set out to scale it by adding another laundry and a third laundry and then a tenth laundry and then having a small chain of laundries, in which case you become a laundry business aggregator with a holding company at the top. And then you're into sort of financial financial um, optimization and you're running a, you know, a scalable business. Um, but most businesses don't even think anything like that. You know, they, they, and you're asking the question, how do you value that moonshot? Well, the answer to that is you have to aim for it. And most businesses aren't. You know, what they're doing is they're working all the hours that God sends them. They Maybe they have a good life. Maybe they don't. It depends on the value that they're creating and the gross margins and how efficiently they're running their business. And, you know, and it's okay. And they're conflating personal expenses as far as possible with, with, you know, with business expenses. And so their total take home as a business owner is, is it's good enough. But they massively overestimate what that's what the terminal value of that business is going to be, and it's often nothing, because once you take once you take the owner out, 
who may be working, let's say he's working actually two jobs because he's head of sales and he's running the business. And a purchaser of the business would either have to replicate that job themselves and do two jobs, and who the hell's going to buy that? Who's going to invest money for the privilege of working 70 hours a week? Or they're going to have to replace them at full cost, which is when the business model then falls apart because you are looking at a business that actually needs to employ two professionals instead of one gifted amateur. And you realize the moment you do that, the business goes into deficit, so nobody's going to pay anything for it. And the the economics and the business models and valuation structures around small to medium-sized businesses are gruesome. That's where where the peanut butter hits the fan in a big way, when people realize that they're 65, 68, maybe getting on for 70, and say, actually, I think I'm going to sell the business. And I know my business is worth two times revenue, because that's what somebody told me Mm. 20 years ago, and that's the assumption that I've been working on. And they go to a business broker or somebody else who sells them, and be sorry, but without you, this business is worth nothing. And actually, with you, it's worth nothing either, except to you. (laughs) Notwithstanding the fact that you have a sort of consulting business, um, do you think that the school system should do a better job of teaching people about business? Oh, I, I suspect Tim, most- with, without doubt, it's one of the lack of knowledge around finance is one of the single most glaring gaps in our education system. And it's, it's heartbreaking. And ludicrous that we should be living in such a financialized world where and no, and nobody understands finance. Not and even in economics. Because you could, you could argue that people are taught economics or you may choose to, to take economics at school and it just it's just that if you don't, you won't understand finance. If you take a, a, an economics course at school, you will still have no idea about how economics works or, or how, none. The, how the markets work. None, none, none. None. There is none. It's it is it's one of the great conundrums, and it's not actually that that much of a conundrum because who's going to teach it? Who's going to teach it? A, a a Marxist bent economics professor, or somebody who believes you know who's left of centre and believes in aggregates and supply and demand equations and has <laughs> physicized finance, I mean, who's going to teach it? Who's going to teach a mortgage mm. to you know, a tenured professor who lives in college and accommodation? No chance. No chance. So, as far, I mean, there must there must be some people listening to this thinking, "Oh, well, I did economics and I learned a lot from it, and that that's great." But if in the, it depends what you're actually doing as a job, because what you do um, is you buy. If I'm if I'm correct in saying, you gave us a, a very nice introduction as to what you do. Um, but in simple terms, you you buy you buy businesses or you invest in businesses, and you help other people value. And analyze their own businesses. Would that would that be correct? Yeah, um, I'm doing much more of the latter now than I. But in the past, that would be I would uh, the past I would be doing more transactional work, and today I'm doing more teaching work. I think when you but first yes. came on, you you were saying I had this this uh, this image of you a, a bit like um, what was it in the first Wall Street with a guy who, who bought bought the um, 
bought the company and then sold it because he could. And it, obviously, you're not not like that. But you you're explaining how you you were valuing businesses and you you, you would go. Would it be auctions that you go to or you used to and and um, you would look at the breakup value and decide whether it was worth buying or not. And um, or, or or look. It also reminded me a bit about. Um, you know, uh, a TV show that was Gordon Ramsay going into various restaurants and restaurants. My children love that. Yeah, and it's it's just so interesting because you can see what they get wrong. Like you know, they've got like a you know too much stuff on the menu, or they've got a chef who's basically intolerable and and decides to do what he wants, or you've got staff who just don't care and give a really bad service. And for some reason, the manager's just going, oh, nothing to see here. I can't understand why this business isn't working. And he just gets... The the incredible thing about Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares is that the problems are so blindingly bloody obvious (laughs) for everybody except the people who are experiencing them. Yeah. I'm running this restaurant. I'm running, like, say, a Chinese restaurant, but I'm actually from Birmingham. and, (laughs) um, And I haven't got any food. So basically, the, the the cupboard is bare, and I don't I don't know where my business is failing. Well, his so, um, his strategy is always very simple, isn't it? It's like buy local, keep a, a very simple menu, slash the menu down, yeah, and just give great service and and yeah. get rid of anyone who's not behind the business. But mm. but that that sort of re- reminded me, or, or, or I had, that was the image I had, so, kind of of you, Stephen. If if that's correct or not, um. My, my, I love business. I, I just, I love the, 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 the whole world of business. And I have a particularly deep respect for people who are, who dedicate their lives. Genuine, to genuine entrepreneurs. Genuine entrepreneurs, genuine you know, people who are running their businesses. And my, um, the skill sets that I've gleaned over the past 30 years at this sort of liminal edge between finance, corporate finance, and the real world of business, coming from the finance side, but with my roots deeply in family business, have given me, and if you like, a poet's heart, have given me a, a, an ability to explain these things in a way that, um, that makes sense to business owners so that they can become better f- financial operators within their own business. Because I couldn't, you know, I, I, I make absolutely no claim to being able to run a business. So it, it, firstly, it would bore me out of my skull. Really? That, that, uh, yeah, that, oh, yeah. Goodness, that's oh, yeah. a surprise. No, I, have, I have no, my interest is in financial side, it's in the people side, and it's in the strategic side. But isn't that running the business, though? Isn't isn't all of that? Well, yes, it is, because I make a huge difference between being a really good owner, which is an entirely different skill set, to being a really good managing director or operating manager. Those two are are entirely different skill sets, and there are the... There is a, you know, there's a, there's a set of things you have to do to be a really good owner, um, and a really good owner is somebody who is intimately acquainted with the details of the business, is not messing around with sort of operations, and is absolutely once he's chosen his managing director, you know, the, the guy who's actually implementing the, the strategy, 
to have his back 100% and be a resource to them and at the end of the day make those capital allocation decisions over and above the um from around the sort of free operating cash flow that the business generates in other words the um the cash flow that is available after you've ensured that the status quo has been invested in and maintained you know that sort of surplus is where the real capital allocation happens and most small businesses do not have very much surplus if any so most of their cash flow has to go back to maintaining the integrity of the, of the status quo otherwise it'll just start going backwards you know if you're not investing in plant and equipment and maintenance or the human resource equivalent which is training and upskilling and so on then the business is going to go backwards you know the compound effect of not investing in your people and your infrastructure is that after let's say five or six years there was a noticeable gap between you and everybody else and if you're still living on 2015 equipment and hasn't and skill sets and everybody else has been sort of keeping up with the times then you're at a competitive disadvantage that uh, that, that it will then take an enormous amount of effort to to catch up and mitigate uh, there was a really so, I know Tim's the one who, who normally does the quotes but there was a, a really great great quote I saw the other day and it was um what if I invest in my people and they leave and the line underneath it was well what if you don't and they stay yeah that's very good that, that reminds me of another one on a very similar <laughs> very similar basis. oh you're gonna trump it now are you my, my only, my only <laughs> quote that in, in like three years of, of podcasts and you're just gonna ruin you won't let me bask in that just for a moment um, all right go on then tim i'm, I'm crying now there's this would tears, you like me to adjudicate well mine's very mine's very simple it's a very short one which is um money talks and mine said goodbye <laughs> <laughs> yeah well there's Okay, well, Paul, you, that round goes to you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> because there's a slightly more wisdom in it. But it was fair. Nice job. So, so here's, a, here's, a, here's a question then. I was talking to a friend, David Zero to Hero, yesterday on the, on the march, the Freedom March in London. And I was talking to him after we peeled off from the, the, the main event about trend-following funds, systematic trend-following funds. And there's a, a great story about a, a group called the t- so-called Turtles who were basically taught the principles of um, trading, technical trading, systematic trading, and technical analysis, um, and they were they were they were tied off the street and and taught the process, and then ultimately most of them became extraordinarily successful. So my question is: Was this a John Henry? Was this John Henry yeah, who did that? It, it, well, it was, it was originally a Richard Dennison, Bill Ecker ah, bet. Yeah. So that the, the, in other words, the plot of Trading Places was was echoed in real life by people who actually did the same experiment, which is a fascinating story. Yeah, mine too. Fascinating story. And so the question is, is a good business owner or manager uh, born or made? In other words, are there some people in business who frankly shouldn't be because they're never going to cut it? Okay, can I answer that that with a... a, um, Song? Uh, no, a dance. Okay. <laughs> with, with, Which is great interpretive, interpretive, interpretive dance. <laughs> with a sort of anecdotal story. And I, I have a friend who is in his 80s now. Um, but about time, 10 years ago, we were talking about um, the different types of people who go into business. And he is 100% Mittelstadt. 100%. He, he's, he, he had a 
a very, very successful group of companies that that, that that had evolved from, I think, his grandfather's business at the beginning of the um, the twentieth century, where they were they were using ceramics as conductors for 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 um, for those old um, fuses. You know, fuses used to be sort of embedded in a sort of ceramic ceramic box. Anyway, it sort of you know, hundred years later, they were still making ceramic electronic components and. Um, Hundred percent. He was a he was a technician down to his fingertips and a a frugal, you know, decent man who had overseen the growth of a very successful business. And he told me that in his experience of sort of working in all sorts of different trade associations and working with local business cooperatives, and he said he would group entrepreneurs into three different categories so half of us at least have a technical background and we got into business because we we wanted to do the stuff that we were technically proficient in, or we maybe had a patent or we got frustrated working for somebody else and decided to you know we could do better than this and set up ourselves and with a laboratory or a workshop or something and sort of just that's what we wanted to do and that's what we did and we were and he said i reckon at least Half of the people in business are there because they are good at something particular that then becomes the the, the value creation process of the business. So the other the maybe forty percent are there because they are dynamic personalities who are really good at sales and relationships and come up through a particular industry and they know enough. But their real ability is sales and developing key relationships, and, and so, so that takes care of about ninety-five percent of all the people in business that he's come across. And so then there's a small sliver of five percent, roughly, max, who are good at finance and they're in business because they understand finance. He said they tend to do much better than all of us. They tend to. Because they just, you know, they don't make the same mistakes, and they know that they can effectively buy great salesmen, and they can buy great technicians, and they know how to value a business, and they just make good business decisions. Mm. But they're thinking about business in a completely different way. They're looking at a business as an asset, and they are understanding the financial mechanics of it, and are good enough at business and at understanding you know, the business model of every business that they've got. Um, they get in their hands that they can they, they can grow it and they can do great things. Whereas so they tend to be the most successful, um, and because they make decisions that are that are rational rather than irrational, in the way that we do. Instead of the way that we make decisions, you know, when we make an irrational decision, it can work out, and it can you know make huge difference. And you're going to have a product that suddenly goes through the roof, although you you didn't realize it was going to or you can be tremendously successful at sales but the bulk of people don't have that sort of luck um and they are definitely the, the volatility of returns from the people who don't understand finance are much broader and that's also been my experience that the very very best small businesses do two things really really well they they focus relentlessly on solving 
a very specific problem or set of problems for a very specific set of customers. And they go deep rather than broad. And they have the discipline and the understanding of how they create value to do exactly that. And the other thing they're really good at is is finance. They understand the financial implications of what they're doing. Now, finance is not the primary driver. The focus and the value creation is the primary driver. And the research that I've done over the past, I don't know, 10 years has shown me that roughly two-thirds of all the value added in across every industry sector in the small business arena, and I'm defining small businesses as any business with up to 250 employees or 50 million in turnover. So look at sort of that section. Two-thirds of all the value created is created by the top decile of companies in every single industry sector. And that the returns that they're generating based on EBIT or net operating profit, however you want to define it, are somewhere in the order of seven to ten times that of the average. And you know, the one piece of advice I would give to any business owner is never, ever, ever price off the average. Never benchmark off the average, because the average is mostly priced for failure. The average is mostly organized around mediocrity, which will tend towards failure. Um, and if you're going to benchmark and if you're going to price, look at what the best people are doing in the industry in your sector um, and benchmark against that. And that's a you know a very I'm not going to say simple because it's not simple, but it will give you some some stark answers as to where you should be focusing your energy and how to make money. And as I say, you know two thirds of all the value created, if you take an industry and aggregate it and throw you know all the companies lump them all together and create one P and L out of all of them, then two thirds of it will be accounted for by the top ten. Percent, and all of it will be accounted for by the top third, so thirty-three to thirty-five percent, which means that everybody after that is either breaking even or losing money, um, and that will give you an idea of of how how the odds are skewed in in the small business arena. The, the returns to competence in small business are the largest. Of anywhere in the sort of the scale of things, you you can have enormous improvements in returns on equity, margins, um, and general levels of 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 wealth in the business um, by doing some fairly simple things well or just better, because most are doing them badly. So your models for um, valuation of a business, do you um, have, first of all, do you have any preferred sectors which you look at? And, and secondly, can you use that valuation on a broader level to determine whether you think equities in general are overvalued or undervalued? Um, there were three questions in there, weren't there? Um, I'll take the one that the last one. The, the last one is um, maybe. I know that's not a very satisfactory answer, but um, I think 
all of us are struggling, particularly those of us who have a value-based approach to everything in life, but particularly finance, most of us are struggling to understand how to evaluate businesses when the risk-free rate is intransparent and possibly negative. So, you know, looking at the value of every business and it's a truism is the, the discounted sum of all the all the future cash flows extractable from that business. And that sounds like an easy formula, but it's art, not science, um, because it requires you to to estimate so many variables going forward, which is why people like businesses with a stable history, because at least they can extrapolate that curve going forward and and look at you know, the next five years of, of the corridor of probable um, cash flows. But putting a valuation on that is, and you know, you can do that, and that's that 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 is something that a trained business operator is doing all the time. It's making value judgments around around the future cash flows of the business and the, the variability of it. What is far, far, far more difficult in this era of manipulated interest rates and the effective disappearance of the long-term bond market as a trustable indicator for the risk-free rate is that we just don't know what the proper discount factor is or what the you know in the absence of so many alternatives today you know, the asset class is effectively being narrowed down to stocks or real estate both of which are highly levered and extremely sensitive to our current you know, probably totally um unrealistic and un- inappropriate rate of interest it's very difficult to know how much longer this can go on, which is why I was fascinated again by your conversation with um, Akil, I think his name is, last week, um, which I've now listened to twice. And I can't wait for him to write his book. And I think he needs to be locked into a room somewhere and forced to write that book (laughs) because I'm dying to read it. (laughs) Um, And his real estate cycle theory, which is fascinating. Um, I, so the answer to the first part of the question is I, yes to an extent, but it's still very difficult to estimate you know, how long this party is going to go and, and how absurd valuation levels can get to before um, before reality kicks in, whatever reality is. You know, if you're basing your estimate of absurd, or if you're if you're uh, you're understanding that these valuations are absurd and based on a normalized long-term bond rate, which you said, well, actually, it should be at 5% or 7% or wherever you think it's appropriate for the rate of interest, for the current level of inflation or the inflation prospect, then, of course, you've got a stock market that is you know, 80% of where it is at the moment, even if you're factoring in a recession. Um, on the other hand, if the real rate of interest or the, the, the true rate of interest is where it is, then, well, who knows? Because we've never been there before. So that's the first part of the question. The second part of the question is, can you do, do I have any specific sectors? And the answer to that is um, also, yes-ish. I, I feel very comfortable with any businesses that have 
um, an asset-based balance sheet um, because I, you know, there were, there were certain rules and laws around that depending on how rapidly the technology is changing in the sort of various components of that balance sheet. They're quite comfortable looking at that because there is a you know, capital-intensive or more capital-intensive businesses, manufacturing businesses, do have dependable cycles and dependable timelines. I also like looking at business services. Once I've understood what the basic model is, um, I'm less good at um, understanding sort of project-based businesses or financial um, financial financially based businesses that uh, you know, like leasing businesses or even to a certain extent insurance businesses. But like, I just I understand what they do, but I'm not sure that I'm capable of understanding the risk parameters that go to determining whether they're good or bad value. So I like businesses with things in them, basically, that you can drop on your foot and it hurts. But I also like business services, which is you know, a broad enough spectrum. That, that, that's a very, that's a, a great answer. I Also, I'd like to ask this question and and get Tim's view on it, because it's, it's something that we've been looking at for a very long time in terms of interest rates being at levels that are well below the long-term average, to say the least. But why is it that um, when you've got a good business that is throwing off cash, is making something real, um, compared to very low interest rates, which is the same for everybody, of course, it's a, a level playing field. It's not like it's low for growth stocks, but but high for these value businesses. What could be the possible reasons for the market shunning these value stocks, which I would have thought will become more valuable in an environment where you can't get interest interest uh, returns on on other investments. It well, seems much it, as it, I hate, yeah, much as I hate to quote Keynes in in, in a in a in a show as um, wash your mouth out with soap and water. Yeah, I will. I promise I will. Um, the Keynes said. It's not a question of when you're judging a beauty contest, not a question of who you think is the prettiest contestant. It's who you think the other judges think is the prettiest contestant. And in a world full of very pretty contestants, the one who promises, the ones that promise exponential growth and top line expansion at large margins are always going to take are going to take the biscuit. They're always going to take the prize home, always. And so we've got this extraordinary situation in which, and I wrote about, I've written about this recently, but the internet has been, if you look at the internet as a, as a continent, it's been colonized by these imperial groups. And we all know their names. And what they've demonstrated is that the sky is literally the limit. You know, the, the, if you've got, distribution costs that are zero or almost zero and there are almost no constraints to your ability to grow well then that model of capitalism and inverted commas is so attractive that anything that is constrained by physical limits like machines and production lines and physical distribution is always going to end up looking like the frumpy old sister, fat sister 
compared to these svelte, endlessly gorgeous models that are um, available otherwise, which is why we now have the highest percentage of companies valued over a billion dollars actually not producing any profits. Some of them don't even have revenue, I think. But it's extraordinary. So we're sort of, we're so fascinated and in, and in, enraptured by this idea of capital-free, endless growth with zero friction costs and distribution costs that, you know, it's driving us berserk. And anybody who promises that with a subscription model at the back is, um, you know, is going to is going to get the attention of the market. And I suspect, uh, and we've been there before. You know, I remember in in 1998, looking at companies in Germany, manufacturing companies with sort of 60 percent world market share in their particular industry niche, very capital intensive, but still producing, you know, gross profit margins of 60 percent and net profit margins of somewhere in the region of 15 to 18. I mean, really, really good businesses. Available on PEs of two and three. That, you know, that that was the, I, they were there. I can you know, dig out lists and show you companies, 10, 15 of them, that were trading at that magical um, formula that Ben Graham you know, used as the basis of his original hedge fund of trading at less, having a market capitalization of less than um, uh, the current assets on the balance sheet or even less than their liquidity. And that was that was true in 1998 and 1999, I remember. Um, and so at points of, of maximum enrapturement with these capital-free, endlessly, exponentially growing businesses um everything else looks frumpy what what would you say to that tim that was that was a very full answer there uh, for sure so i can't i can't fault the the erudition or yeah. the articulacy of, of, of stephen's argument the only thing i'd add would be a, 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 a frankly boring technical observation which is uh, indexation once again is also to blame so these things become self-fulfilling prophecies when they get big enough when very, you're very good point. when you're uh, a huge you know, capital light, asset light, you know, software type business, and then you're in a multi multi billion dollar territory. The indices, you you become a component of the indices, and then all of the basically closet index trackers have to own you, whether they like you or not. So, and if you think that the two largest asset managers on the planet are Vanguard and BlackRock, more than half of whose assets are index tracking assets, then this this thing will go on until it stops, and it, it can't go on forever. And it'll stop when, for individual companies, when they start making earnings misses, and then the market will be savage in in derating them. But then, unless and until that happens, this this like Stephen says, this thing goes on to this thing grows to the sky. And we're already in that asymptotic blow off phase, and it's. We are just in, the, in a phase of history exacerbated by all the complete nonsense that's going on around us um, in which, you know, this is going to play out too 
the point at which it really does become completely unsustainable. We're not there yet. I noticed um, that you, you you very recently wrote about COVID having sort of studiously avoided the topic for for eighteen months or so of, of, of commentary that I'm aware of. Do you do you get any do you draw any comfort from I mean, the fact that I was, I was on this march in London, not massively well attended, but what was massively well attended were marches all over the world yesterday. Do you get any comfort from the fact that there is there would appear to be growing evidence of a genuine great awakening by the people of the world? Yes, I do. And um, I was secretly hoping you were going to veer the conversation in that direction because as far as I'm concerned, you know, there, there are moments, I, I suspect you've, both of you have been there or arrived at that point much, much earlier than I did. I've, from the very, very first moment that this appeared, I have every fiber in my body has protested against it as being wrong. But I didn't have any arguments or I didn't have enough scientific knowledge around you know, the, the spread of viruses. So, so it's more of a gut, a gut feel than anything substantial. Well, yes, and it's based on, on a, you know, you and I, or the three of us, I think, are at our core um, friends of and followers of the Austrian school. And the Austrian, you can't be a fan of the Austrian school of economics without being, having a sort of strong libertarian um understanding of the role between the citizen and the state and having a deep suspicion and understanding that whenever the state decides that it wants to solve a problem, it usually makes a god-awful horlicks of it and Mm -hmm. does far more damage in in, in impressing its, its solution on the populace and does it in such a heavy-handed and then coercive way that it always ends up making things much, much worse than they would have been had the market been allowed and people, and forget the market, people been allowed to sort these things out by themselves. I think my favorite so, quote on I think my favorite quote on this one is Milton Friedman saying that if the state was responsible for the Sahara within three three years there'd be a shortage of sand. Yeah, I think it was Friedman who said that. And and it you know it sort of it it describes the built-in incompetence by the even if you attribute the best possible motives, which I very rarely do, but if you were to, the the level of incompetence plus the inability to course correct, and I think that's one of the largest dangers of state intervention, anything, is the amount of political capital that needs to be invested in in demonstrating to the general public that we've got this under complete control and there is, you know, we've thought it through and we know absolutely what to do. It doesn't allow for a plan B. It doesn't allow, well, it doesn't allow for course correction, which is how everybody else in the world has to function. Every business, every Mm. individual has to live with constant adjustments to their narrative and to be able to make dramatic changes in their lives and circumstances when the evidence becomes overwhelming or so obvious that you know that that it shows that the uh, um, that the that the initial course is based on deeply flawed decisions and they haven't thought through second, third, or fourth order consequences, which are difficult enough. But if you so, 
the answer to the question is that I am encouraged. And I'm encouraged because my own understanding of what the problem is has now matured to a point where I say, I get it. I understand what's happening. I don't understand why it's happening. And that is the sort of speculation of, you know, really of, of, of malicious intent, of, um, of the, the question that you keep throwing up over the last two years, which has been um, cock, up, cock up or conspiracy. I'm, I'm going to ignore that for the moment because mm. I don't think it's helpful at this point. You know, when, when, when we're through this, then hopefully there will be inquiries or possibly not. Um, to look at the motivation strategies and um, and um, um, intentions of the pe- of the various people influencing this, but as far as I'm concerned, the problem I've now understood that the problem of leaky vaccines and the effective way in which we've been treating the entire population as if they were bedridden. Mm. which is where leaky vaccines cause the biggest problem in forcing a genetic mutation, which is, you know, part of the life of a respiratory virus is to mutate, 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 mutate. And it mutates in a healthy environment where there are plenty of people who have natural immunity, which 90 to 99% of us have in some form or another from previous respiratory viruses, because that's how we've survived for the past million years that the real problem is now the vaccination. Because if you have any understanding of statistics and you look at the difference between this time last year and now, look at the cases, look at the infections, look at the hospitalizations, look at the death rates, and see that there has been a dramatic increase in both, in all three of those, and right across the spectrum. The only variable that has changed and it's the biggest one, is the fact that we now have 60 to 80% of populations vaccinated with what has been known from the beginning to be a leaky vaccine. In other words, it doesn't confer, confer sterilized immunity. And because of that, the vaccinated are now, you know, there are millions and millions of mini ovens cooking away variants that are by default, because of the fact that they've been vaccinated and because of the fact that uh, um, there are so many of them that are now more dangerous um, and hotter as variants than they would be if we'd have let it run its course. And I think that once you understand that actually nobody is vaccinated because the half-life of all of these vaccinations is about two months and the full life you know, that gets it down to 10% efficacy or maximum is somewhere in the region of 180 days, then we have the absurd situation that we have a we have a larger and larger amount of the population acting as incubators for the more dangerous varieties instead of letting the the normal path of these these viruses take its 18-month course along the Gompertz curve. And that the viruses and the reactions of effectively locking everybody down and not allowing transmission. So in other words, we're treating everybody as if they're bedridden, um, which is where the dangerous mutations of, of the respiratory viruses have always occurred, but they've never been able to get out and battle um, 
the the more the cooler versions and the increasingly cooler versions. So the problem is not only the response, locking down masks, distancing, all of this nonsense, but the vaccinations themselves. And if you take the attitude, which is always a healthy one to do, and say, let's invert the problem. Let's just see what do we think the problem is? What's the narrative? Let's just invert it. The inversion we do at the moment is that the unvaccinated are the problem. Or if you invert it and say, okay, the vaccinated are the problem and the vaccination strategy is the problem. And in fact, nobody is truly vaccinated in the sense that they have permanent, um, they have permanent or even semi-permanent um, immunity to the virus. What you're finding is that people are, you know, working around as little incubators for the worst, for for worse versions. They leave that natural, they leave that immunity state status after two months or three months, and then become even more vulnerable to the very mutations that they themselves have been responsible for incubating. And then you've got the third aspect of this, which is, I think, called the Merck effect, which was um, first discovered in um, after a chicken herpes virus, where this, this effect of leaky virus, a leaky, um, of a leaky vaccine being administered to a large sort of population of, of chickens, battery chickens, um, forcing, a, I think it was a herpes infection, a far more aggressive version to emerge, which then devastated 90% of the unvaccinated chickens. And that, I think, is called the Merck effect. And, uh, um, and that's what I'm really frightened of, that this ridiculous strategy of, of using a known, um, vir- uh, a known leaky, vir- uh, leaky vaccine um, and thereby encouraging ever more aggressive strains and not looking at the statistics and saying, why on earth are we in a worse place than we were last time? Why is Israel? in a worse place than it was, despite having now coming into its fourth booster shot. Um, and, and Egypt, on the other hand, having 3% vaccination using hydroxychloroquine or whatever it's called, plus ivermectin at a very early stage because they can't afford and didn't have access to the vaccines, having a case rate of something like 14 infections per 100,000 compared to the 5,000 or 6,000 that Israel now has, Germany having double the amount of deaths and hospitalizations than it had a year ago before it had vaccinated 63 or 65% of the population. Now, it doesn't take a genius to say that, well, maybe that variable is what's causing the problem. And I think once that realization comes into the general public and people realize that this is lunacy, absolute lunacy, murderous lunacy, then I think the the native reaction that this is somehow bad, authoritarian, illiberal, and and a a uh, and evil and evil. It's as simple as that. It's evil. That that realization, which is a political realization, once that is, once the weight of of knowledge around the inefficacy. Of the and the damage being done by the by these vaccines, and I don't care. I mean, I do care, but I don't. I don't need to bring any of the other arguments about possible other effects of these vaccines. I don't understand it. You know, there is a, you know, there's there's 
there's an enormous increase in um, in what's it called adverse reactions, mm. and that's so politicised now. I just you don't even need to think about that. If we just concentrate on what this is doing to the the SARS-CoV-2 virus in terms of exacerbating and encouraging more aggressive strains to the detriment of less aggressive and by nature um, more infectious strains. So it doesn't matter if we don't, in fact, if, if it's more infectious and less um, harmful, then that is like, you know, a software update for our system because it, it gives us the, the, um, the immune memory and the immune uh, protection against future viruses. But at once, I think people realize that this is really a function of the vaccination with a leaky vaccine. Then I believe that the anger that people are now feeling that is political will then spill over into something much, much stronger than that. Um, because they'll have the science to back it. The, the science, by the way, has always been there. People have known about this. You know, there's, there's, it's not as if this is new. It's not a new virus. Um, I think that was you know, effectively proved a long, long time ago, um, the right at the beginning of this pandemic. And it is... An alleged me, pandemic. Well, in fact, no, that's not the word I choose to use either. So, um, But this <laughs> challenge posed by... SARS-CoV-2, um, I, you know, I leave it to others to dissect the possible motivations of the various players in this. But I think we need to focus relentlessly on the actual facts of the matter, because you know, if you look at again, look at Germany, um, the 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 response, and that was what triggered my my letter, my newsletter last uh, Friday, the response of the sort of medical authorities and the government to doubling down on a strategy without even pausing to consider that it might be the strategy that's causing the problem is going to be its undoing. Because you can cut, you, there's, there's only a certain amount of distance you can go before it becomes so screamingly obvious to everybody that the first resistance to taking the booster shots um, and an understanding of the differences between a leaky virus that doesn't confer sterilizing immunity and a, an unleaky one uh, that does its job properly, which is never, ever, ever going to be possible for a coronavirus because of its ability to mutate so quickly. Um, and the whole idea of herd immunity, which was nonsense from the start. Um, and I don't know whether you've read Julius Reuchel's piece um, on the snakes, snake oil salesman, um, in which he says, you know, in any any virus that is um, that can move from species to species, you know, from deer to bats to badgers to to monkeys to humans, it is absolutely impossible in a transspecies virus to achieve ever to achieve any sort of um, herd immunity. Uh, certainly not zero. He said it's an authoritarian fantasy um, that somehow we could beat nature um, by diktat. And that sort of speaks to the arrogance and stupidity of, of, of big government and another reason why we shouldn't have it. Amen. Just a quick, yeah. leap, a quick leap back to, to put matters financial and, and market-related in this instance. 
Do you have concerns that the central banks of the world have now lost control of their own bond markets? Because I do, <laughs> as, as sort of the, the question implies. <laughs> well, um, they now own them, don't they? So they can do they can do what, do what they, they like with them. Yeah. So whether they've you know lost control of is an interesting word or an interesting phrase because they now have almost complete control. I think markets have lost control of the government bond market as a as a you know mechanism for gauging and setting an appropriate rate of interest. Well, let, let, me re, let me rephrase that then a little. Do you think that central bankers are at risk of looking like complete clown chimps because they are boxed into a corner where they, whereby they cannot lower rates and nor can they raise them? So their anti-inflation credentials look like a, a bag of piss. Um. Well, I can answer that. I think the answer is yes, because my 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 sense is that um, fifty years of if you can probably take it back to Lyndon B. Johnson's government, you don't have to start with Nixon's devaluing or decoupling the gold. So, so Johnson basically is accountable for guns and butter policy. So the 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 big welfare state and the cost of the Vietnam War. Yeah, and you can sort of go back again to to Roosevelt, who's in, in my eyes the biggest of the um, um, uh, the biggest infringer of of this of you know sound money, mm. um, and I, I think they've genuinely, after fifty years of compound deficit spending, and all that that entails. Know, complete erosion of morals and, and norms around money production. We are getting the results of that now, and whether it happens this year or next year or in five years' time, I who knows? I mean, they've, they've lost all pretense at wanting to preserve any sort of purchasing power. Ver- well, any any sort of um, uh, pretense at, at maintaining the value of the currency. Mm. You know, as a as a store of value, that's that went out of the window. I'm going to say it's it's been out of the window a long time, but it was efficiently chucked out in 2008. Um, and who knows where this ends? We we who understand and have read the Austrian Economist know that the crack up boom and the eventual destruction of the currency, either through hyperinflation or through depression um, or what or maybe one followed by the other is the inevitable consequence of this and to tie it back to your inflation uh, your uh, index fund question it, that's when it finishes mm. you know, this the index fund mania and the sort of constant compounding of previous errors and systemic um, favoritism, through the compounding effect um, of ever more money being put into ever you know, this small portfolio of stocks that never comes into any sort of correction, that finishes and that whole thesis around indexing finishes at the same time that the economy goes into a prolonged, prolonged phase of Sub-part price performance. Adjust, price adjustment. 
adjustments, mm. price adjustments, so that all the sort of the malinvestments that have you know that are effectively turning the banking system into a Japanese like zombie banking system when when that's over. And who the hell knows when that's going to be? So, so I, I, I clearly see merit in in gold and the monetary metals. Do you do you see any merit in crypto as a possible solution to some of these problems? Um, I, I, I do. I think I do. Um, I my understanding of crypto was advanced. Certainly, Bitcoin was advanced significantly in the recent conversation between our mutual friend. I think. Um, Safadina Moves and Jordan Peterson, mm. um, where I, I, I sort of something clicked and I understood that the 21 million limit, hard limit for Bitcoin production, I understood how that that is the thing. I always sort of imagined that somebody could open up that algorithm and tinker it and say, you know what, 21. It's probably not enough. Let's make it 31 million. And then and then you know the inflation of that particular currency would be sealed. But I understood that that is physically impossible. That um, once the 21 million Bitcoin has been mined, that really is it. And if that is true, and it appears to be, without my being able to tell you why it's true, um, then that makes a very interesting case for Bitcoin and you know, probably attest to the genius of the man who created that algorithm. Um, still, for somebody who whose preference is for the physical world, even though you know I'm, I have no problem with the spiritual, I find the the very esoteric nature of of something that is um as virtual as a bitcoin i find that difficult to get my head around completely mm. but i'm starting to believe that there is a natural place for it in the in the store of value pantheon mm. yeah although my preference would still be for a, <laughs> a couple of ingots in the cellar <laughs> So your um, your analysis, just uh, if we can go back, to, unless Tim's got any more financial no, questions. No, I'm done. I'm, I'm done. I'm okay. Done. Yeah. So, so your analysis of the um, the the, the uh, situation with regard to the virus and the vaccines and and all that. Um, where where are you getting your your sources from? What is what analysis have you now done that you hadn't done before? Um, I've been. In Reading a lot of the support material that Julius Reichel um, refers to in his book, The Autopsy of a Pandemic, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, I've been following Professor Byron Bridal intensely um, as one of the world's leading vaccinologists and someone who spent his entire life working on vaccine technologies um and his it's I, I, he first came to my attention with his with his letter to the president of or the chancellor of um guelph university in canada which is where he has his tenure um and it's a 
sort of ten page letter setting out his his pushback against the appalling treatment that he's been subjected to at the hands of the university without the chance of lifting a finger and explaining in great detail why the science that he and his colleagues have been propagating and effectively saying these these vaccines are just nonsense they are they are they're badly made vaccines he said as somebody who spends his life and by the way he says in his letter and brought great prestige and sponsorship and and funding to the university who spent his life understanding the difference between a good vaccine and a bad vaccine i can say unequivocally this is a these are rotten they're dreadful um, and they don't even pass the minimum standards for what a really good vaccine ought to look like and then he explains in you know, a great length in interviews subsequent the other person who's been doing some amazing statistical work is someone who got chucked off twitter a year ago and i know that you know him you both know him as well his handle is um um Oricagato. he's based in puerto rico and uh, he um it goes he went under the, the handle of il gato malo or the bad cat and he has now moved to substack in the last year because since he was so off twitter and has been producing some outstanding statistical analysis um going very deeply into the data and of course our mutual friend nick hudson who is doing the most amazing work with his panda group um and so on and so forth you know there 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 are plenty of um scientists of great repute um and people who understand statistical analysis and are using the government's own data and sort of parsing it and doing the right things with it um in order to um to explain the you know, explain what's happening but i think the most important work that that i'm focusing on is coming from professor brightel and from Julius Reichel and, and those two together give a pretty complete picture of the dangers of, of effectively messing around with um, the natural processes with shoddy instruments and using coercion to effectively reconstitute um, the environment which was so fatal in the Spanish flu in the second wave in 19, in uh, 1919 when you know the the a large percentage of the population was effectively in a lockdown in the trenches or in the hospitals and we had this sort of huge nosocomial um rampage of the virus in its second wave that um was a direct result of this um uh, um of the of the more malignant or more aggressive strains um becoming um becoming endemic or pandemic as it was in, in those days and by locking everybody down and treating them as if they're bedridden and in the trenches which is effectively what governments have done um out of this completely misguided idea of of uh, um of flattening the curve they have done they, they've reproduced you know, for modern times the um the conditions that favor more aggressive variants over more infectious but less aggressive um subsequent variants until it sort of disappears as the spanish flu has now done 
into one of the 200 different respiratory or coronaviruses that you know we contend with all the time. And that, that's where I'm getting my information from. Were there any conclusions that that the that he drew from um, where we might be going? So this is obviously retrospective analysis, but I mean, I'm asking it in the, in the sense that I'm hoping that there's some potentially good news out there that um, it, it doesn't necessarily well, have to go down that the, bad the, route. The, the good news is that nature is on our side if we if we adhere to the protocols that were in place before 2020. You know, the, the WHO's own protocols, which are which have been rehashed by the Barrington, the Great Barrington Declaration, which is effectively just stop it, just stop it, stop, um, stop treating everybody as if they were dangerous and in danger when they are self-evidently not. Focus all our attention on protecting the vulnerable, and that only to the extent that they are that they wish to be protected. And otherwise, do what what medical protocol for the case of a pandemic um, has been for the 20 years prior to 2020, which was not to have any of these non-pharmaceutical interventions, not to disrupt public life, not to make life you know, make it even worse, because they knew, they they absolutely knew. And if you you know this this idea that. Um, that this is all new science is ludicrous. And this is 101 virology, evidently. I mean, I don't have a degree in virology. I don't want one. But I'm prepared to bow to people whose lives have been spent understanding this, particularly when they take the trouble to explain it to me in a way that you know makes perfect sense. And if enough people are saying this with, with highly... Uh, with the highest levels of qualification and no conflicts of interest. Uh, everybody who is working for a government advisory council or is working for Gavi or is funded by in any institution that has a pharmaceutical company behind it, you can discount their advice by about 98%. So we only, they're the only people to listen to at the moment who do not have a deeply conflicted um, or partisan view of this are the people who are suffering you know, personal privation and real opprobrium um, and danger to their careers and sometimes their own person um, for standing up and saying and calling the truth out for what it is. And my, my deep hope is that their voices will be loud enough and will carry far enough um, and they're deprived of all sort of conspiracy or strategic interest discussions, the conflation of interests, um, to say this is this is the science behind the virus. And it's it's looking to me very, very much as though the government's intervention are making it worse. So the only the only hope we have is to stop a Merck effect happening, and that is to for enough people to say fuck off. Um, I'm allowed to say that on your show. Just you. to stand up yeah. and yeah. stand up and just not comply. And the more we can have these demonstrations, and I understand, for instance, that the police in Austria are refusing to um, implement the the unvaccinated um, controls 
because they say it's 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 just against sort of human human rights and and I, and I understand the Austrian police are saying no that they're not going to do it they're not going to enforce it um, and once that happens then I'm just hoping that dams will break mm. and and that the evidence that is mounting that the the countries with the highest rates of vaccination are suffering the worst effects of um of hospitalization deaths and cases that people will start recognizing that those two variables are dependent so um tim was there anything that you you wanted to ask Stephen before we no I, I mean I've obviously just been hugely impressed by by what Stephen said today about everything so yeah. it's, it's always it's always a pleasure to listen to him um I, <laughs> thank I'm, you I've got nothing I've got nothing more to say well with regard to your writing because it was actually there's was, there's was two more things first of all um where do you publish your written research because you mentioned that earlier and Obviously, I can't ask one question without another, it seems. Um, you also mentioned right at the top of the show that one of the options you were thinking of was moving to America. And I've always had a great love of America. Um, but I'm actually quite worried about where America's going as well, um, tying it into this this topic that we're talking about now. It seems like it's becoming more draconian there than indeed we have in the UK, or certainly in England. Um do you still sh do you would you still have a desire to to go to America or uh, an a an other country um, if things got really strange in 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 Ireland where you are now? Well, Ireland is always strange, <laughs> and it always has been, and always will be. Um, Ireland is very pragmatic, um, which is lovely, and I'm deep in the countryside in South Wicklow. An area that Cromwell had great difficulty with. Now, this is the, the this is the gateway to the Wicklow Mountains, and whoever controlled Red Cross, um, which is the crossroads in the village just up the hill from here, they effectively controlled access to the Wicklow Mountains. And once the sort of partisans and once you got into the Wicklows, you couldn't find just impossible to find because it's sort of rough, wild lakes, valleys, network of of labyrinth of different places. So um, this place has a, has a history of um, insurrection and resistance to tyranny, um, which I feel quite comfortable with. Um, so the answer to that's only a flippant answer to your question. Um, my own belief, to put the, the American question in context, is that we are approaching a we're approaching a point at which big everything in our sort of 200, last 250-year development, particularly the nation-state, its monopoly on violence, its aggregation of ever more power, and its inefficiency, that we're coming to the end of it, and that the next wave will see a breaking up and a recession of this thing that we call the nation state and the the the, the great and and its evolution towards an even to even larger superstructures you know the sort of world government idea 
Um, and I think if you look at the United States as the place in the world where that glorious experiment in democracy was first given a home with the early settlers and then the, the foundation of the, of, the, of the first states and then the evolution of the constitution, um, there is a, um, we've reached the point now, I think, at which, and I think COVID has been an accelerant for that, at which the state governors are now recognizing that they need to start taking powers back from the state that the state has abrogated to itself in flagrant, um, in flagrant uh, abuse of the Constitution. Because the Constitution was set up precisely and very specifically to separate and minimize the amount of power transferred to the state. And the state, you know, the state has a Supreme Court to interpret the Constitution. Unfortunately, this, the, the referee is also being paid by one side. So it's no great surprise that over the past hundred years, as this has become more and more virulent, that the Supreme Court has been delivering um, verdicts that are in in a gross contravention of the spirit and the letter of the Constitution, and that that has been sort of, you know, been forming the basis of constitutional law. So if you're paying for the referee, then it's no wonder that you're getting the judgments that, uh, um, and the penalty kicks <laughs> against against your opponents um, and scoring the easy goals. But I think that is changing. And I don't believe that the great American experiment is by any way at an end. You know, the, it, it wasn't set in stone. We're not moving from 1776 to the 200th anniversary, 250th anniversary of 1776 in, in 2026. It's not, been, it's not a straight line that it ends with, you know, the dissolution of the Constitution. I think the Constitution is such an amazing document that it will lead to a reorganization of the power structure within the United States as the American empire, you know, has reaches the point at which it, it is no longer sustainable. And we're seeing that in the world. You know, we've been seeing it for the last I don't know, 10, 15 years that the, the American empire or the time of the American empire has reached that point, which all empires reach, where it's just overstretched. Central government is bloated. It no longer fills its uh, serves its purpose. It's now sort of acting in the to the detriment of uh, um, of the population. And the United States Constitution, uniquely amongst all constitutions, allows the states to start repatriating power if they want to. And um, the process is called nullification. Um, they just have, they just declare null and void any law that is in contravention of the Constitution, even if it's been ratified by the Supreme Court, they just nullify it. And I have a suspicion that nullification is going to be the word that we will become most used to and have to understand over the next decade as American states start repatriating um, repatriating powers that they have rescinded or rather just let flow to the center. Um, and that's going to be very interesting because then the question is, is it going to happen peacefully or not? Is it going to lead to complete secession? Is it going to lead to sort of confederations of um, states with similar views? 
are we going to see a massive split along cultural divides? You know, the the woke empires of California and the East Coast states, New York and Washington, probably, um, on the one hand, and the more traditional conservative um, states with a different political view. Is that going to lead to civil war? Yes or no? Who, who knows? But I think that's what's going to happen. Um, and when America and the American Constitution unfolds, you know, so this, that great experiment keeps rolling on and deals with this new threat or challenge, um, it will be very interesting to see how other superstructures um, react because I, I think it's almost impossible for an evolving United States of America with an evolving relationship between the states and the center that that would not be without significant impact on, say, Europe, which has a far less um, malleable and um, and adaptable constitution. You know, that's a, that Europe is more like the Holy Roman Empire. It's sort of imposed from the top. You know, the top was created to subjugate the nations. Um, and in America, it was exactly the opposite. It was a sort of shared service center. Um, and, <laughs> and, and I think the same is true for the United Kingdom, by the way. I think uh, um, the, the extent to which the United Kingdom has, has demonstrated the weakness of, of its governance structure and the fact that all five of, or let's say all four of the, the, the branches of government and the checks and balances, you know, the, what used to be the, um, the Lord Chancellor's office, and which is now a sort of Supreme Court since Tony Blair completely screwed with the uh, constitutional structure of the United Kingdom. Um, the media, who are no longer doing their job to sort of whip in egregious breaches of, of, um, of constitutional norms. Um, the police as the sort of instrument of law enforcement that is now completely bought into and been overtaken by this ludicrous politicization um, and I'm going to call it woke theory um, so that you know, they've been, they're no longer reliable and the government itself, which is not really accountable anymore. Um, and I think that that is going to lead to all other things, you know, all going out from coming out from the United States to a reorganization of the constitutional basis of the union itself, which, to be fair, some very intelligent people have already come up with some excellent solutions for devolution, for devolution of power into a reorganization. And who knows whether in a, an arrangement like that, and I can't say that too loudly, of course, on a podcast being broadcast, but you know, who knows where Ireland's place in that new arrangement might be. How far away do you think we are from this? It's um, obviously well, that's think, extremely difficult think, to predict. But. I think COVID is, the response to COVID has exposed fundamental weaknesses and a massive overstretch and overreach of, and the weakness of central government. You know, they, 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 this will be seen to have been a gigantic and very costly in terms of human life and prosperity. Two things that governments, the only thing that they really can base their, 
their power um, on is the idea that they preserve life and promote prosperity. And, and I think it will be seen that they've done neither um, and harmed both over the course of the next year or two. Um, and once they lose that basic right to govern, then I suspect that you know, the next five years will be extremely turbulent. And that sort of ties into Akhil's prediction of how he sees the cycle playing out. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have more of this for the next two or three years. By the time we get to 2026, I think the orchestra will be in the sort of in the final, final movement. Um, and then the end of this decade, we'll see the cows coming home to roost. And they're being, I, I see that being a time of substantial change um, with the different expressions of that change in the various different cultural spheres that we are witnessing, you know, that make up our world. But it's coming, there's no doubt in my mind about it. And with regard to where you're writing, um, is it on a blog on Good and Prosper, your website? No, it was my newsletter, the place that I'm, I'm sort of trying to consolidate all that at the moment. And my newsletter only started sort of by accident in March 2020. Um, and then if I'm sitting at home, then I've got really no excuse to not writing a regular something. Um, and I committed to writing a weekly essay and sending it out via the only sort of mail, mail list organizer that I had, but my designers or people who've done my website set up for me, which was in MailChimp. So that's where I've been writing it from. And I've been doing that now for 86 weeks nonstop. And the first 86 is the hardest, though, Stephen, to be fair. Well, that's what I've heard. You know, people said <laughs> the first 86. So if you, you can go to the... Um, you can go to the Good and Prosper website and the sort of pop-up menu will ask you if you want to subscribe to the newsletter. And if you do that, then you will get it. But Interesting. I also, well, I've been there and it, 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 it must have just missed it. I didn't see that. So I'll have to, uh, I'll have to sign up. I didn't realize that was where you got it. Well, I'll, I'll send you the link and if you're kind enough to put it in the show notes. Of course. And, uh, um, and I was expecting, by the way, to lose half my subscribers um, by even mentioning you know, the whole vaccination and COVID issue. And in fact, one of my long-term readers wrote back to me from the States and said, the moment she saw what I was writing, she said, oops, there goes 50% of his subscriber base. And to be honest, my, over the weekend, my subscribers have gone up rather than down, um, which has been very encouraging. And I've had more feedback from that one newsletter than I think all the others put together. So I've been inundated. And uh, you, you're on Twitter as well, aren't you? But I don't think you, do you uh, tweet much. I, I, I am on Twitter, um, but I'm only because it's the only place I can talk to Tim regularly. Um, but mostly I'm on LinkedIn. Right. Because I decided I had to be somewhere. And if I was going to be somewhere, I may as well have and do it for sort of my consulting business. And LinkedIn seems to be the place where grown-ups congregated and i've sort of understood how linkedin works now so i'm on linkedin a lot um writing about sort of business issues that interest me and i hope interest other people and my newsletter those are sort of two places that i'm most active 
Brilliant. So I think we should go to media picks then. Tim, what, what do you reckon? By all means, let's, let's, let's go with them. Right. So do, do you want to start, Tim? I'll, I'll lead off. Um, I'm going to be going to break break from um, tradition on this one. I'm going to recommend uh, some music. It's the, um, the score to The Social Network, which I'd say is the best film of the last 20 years. David Fitch's The Social Network, all about the founding of Facebook. But it's, this, it's the soundtrack album by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, um, formerly or still with, I believe, Nine Inch Nails. Um, I've, what, one of the things that's kept, if I've kept any sanity, if I've retained any sanity over the last 18 months, it's been in part down to listening to music as a distraction from the horrors of this world. And some of the best music is basically on this album. Um, so it's a social network soundtrack by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Superb film, and the soundtrack itself won an Academy Award. So I can't say any better than that. Brilliant. Um, Stephen? Um, this is so difficult. Um, <laughs> I would say that um, given where we are in the world, one of the best books that I have read in recent years has to be um, Wilhelm Röpke's uh, The German Question. Röpke was a, an economist who was writing, who was professor of economics at Marburg University in the 19, early 1920s and was an outspoken critic of Hitler and Nazism. And at the, he went into act, he was one of the first people who were cancelled by the um, the, re the regime when they came to power in 1933 and he left the country immediately because he felt his life was in danger and started a post in um, Geneva um, from where he wrote some of his sort of big uh, economics treaties, most importantly, The Humane Economy, which is also a brilliant book. But when he came back at the end of the war in uh, 1947 and it published in 1950, a book called The German Question, which was an examination of how the hell this went wrong. And as a, as a piece of European history, it's not just about Germany, but it's about totalitarianism, how it happens, what you need to watch out for, how other countries can be complicit in the rise of totalitarianism, how Germany's own history from Bismarck almost predetermined the outcome that eventually um, confronted it and destroy, almost destroyed it as a society. And it's, I read it in the English version because Röpke himself admitted that his translator could write better than he could. Um, and it's a beautiful book full of unbelievable insights and I think of great relevance to today not that i'm comparing where we are today with nazism that would be a, a stupid mistake but it does talk about the evolution of tyrannical state governments and what we need to be mindful of and it's so resonant it could have been written for today so that's my that would be my media tip and i, I don't watch enough television um, or if I don't watch any television and I don't really watch enough films to be able to give you 
a good media tip other than to say that I can't wait for Ozarks 4 to come out. Oh, yeah, 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 <laughs> me too, me too. But yeah, no, I mean, it's um, it doesn't have to ever be a film. It's actually, you know, it's just anything that you think is... Uh, is is worthy of um of bringing to our attention um so so um you also mentioned a book which i'm going to put in the show notes anyway um and check out which i didn't note down so i'm gonna have to listen back but you said you said there was an analysis of pandemics which oh it's fantastic absolutely superb and um as i've mentioned it once already and i thought no no please mention please please mention it again because people will be in the car and stuff so it's called the anatomy, the autopsy of a pandemic by Julius Reichel, who's a Canadian, and it's absolutely required reading for any anybody who really wants to understand the the scientific and political context of of what's happening. Mostly, sort of, based, it's based on the science of virology and, and his understanding of how this played out, and it's absolutely superb. Brilliant. And if you can't bear reading the whole book, then he wrote a long-form essay called The um, Snake Oil Salesman, um, which is a sort of synopsis of the main argument of the book on his website, Julius Reichel. Excellent. Excellent. I'll put those uh, put links to both of those on the show notes for everyone. So I think cool. we've got plenty there, but I will just add for me because i think this is probably well it will be going out close to christmas if not um you know a, a week or so before but a great christmas film is trading places a great film is trading places oh, yes. you did mention it before um oh yeah i love trading places i saw it seven times in the cinema when it came out that's the only film i've ever <laughs> ever seen so many times um and, um, I also happen to have a crush on Jamie Lee Curtis. So that <laughs> it's good, make you a bad person, Stephen. It's a good film for that, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, they didn't shy away from a few scenes. Um, but uh, but yes, most, most, most people's video copies just disintegrated on the uh, rewind, constantly rewinding to the uh, sequence in her in the bedroom when she gets the, the door closed. <laughs> yeah, um, but I, I I wonder about you that. Sleep on the floor. I wonder about that. You know, for for say our younger audience, where they'll they'll watch it and say, "Oh, that hasn't dated very well," but I, I hope not because it it doesn't feel like there's anything to date other than I guess the technology. The whole message of it was just brilliant. So it was extremely funny, um, and for anyone who's interested in markets, it's it's just excellent. So pure entertainment Looking all the way through. Looking good, Billy Ray. Yeah, feeling good, Lewis. It's it's just. <laughs> Yeah, classic, classic, um, classic um, dialogue, classic film in every way. Denham Elliott, eggnog, just just like those little moles. I mean, just <laughs> superb. Um, but yeah, so that will be. What was the name of the t- What was the name of the brothers? The trade Randolph and Mortimer Duke. 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 Yeah, Duke, Duke and Duke, Duke and Duke Enterprises. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, getting good. a bacon and lettuce and tomato sandwich. What's great is they didn't try to make a sequel either because it would have just ruined it. I don't think they could ever... In those days, every sequel, apart from obviously The the Godfather, but every sequel was a money Red grab thing. and it was just awful um, hashed together. I, it, at least nowadays, sequel they understand that they're investing in a in a brand and therefore they've got to keep the writing and the quality up. But in those days, it was it, literally... It would it would be ruined. Um, 
I think Randolph and Mortimer, do you, do you have a cameo at the end of Coming to America when yes. they're sort of they're, they're bums on the street and then they get so someone gives them some money and says, We're back in business, Randolph. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but um Stephen, it's been such a pleasure having you on. It always is. And if you are coming uh, to the UK, if coming to London at any point, please do let us know because it'd be nice I to will. have a drink. Um, w- Tim and I are going to be meeting up with Akil Patel at the end of this month. So if you happen to be coming, you know, you could get to meet him as well. So, um, uh, love to. Yeah. So, um, so just once again, thank you for your time. And, um, and just remind us once again of your, your website just before you go. Goodandprosper.com. Good and Good prosper. And prosper. Yeah, so it's the, the word com. and as opposed to ampersand. Goodandprosper.com. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My boy, my boy, my boy. Ha, 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 ha. Beef jockey. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's from Trading Places. Tim Tim hasn't, uh, hasn't lost it. Um, <laughs> well, that's debatable. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Well, thanks again. All the very best and uh, hope to see you soon. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks, thanks, Tim. Stephen. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a Thank good you. one. You Bye-bye. too. Bye. Bye-bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.